Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, hi there. I'm your host, Simon. What happens here is I have been provided a script. Today's script script comes from Ilza. Thank you, Ilza. Uh, and I've never read this before. We're exploring it together. It's who wrote the plays of William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare! But that would be boring and nothing to decode. Although I've actually, I say I don't know anything about this. I actually have made a video about this before on another channel a long time ago. And there was some conspiracy, like people think that William Shakespeare wasn't real or something like that. And I think we ended that video being like, nah, 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 but he was real, wasn't he? Although there were like some seeds of doubt sprinkled in my mind, uh, but I don't remember very much. Anyway, let's just get on with it, shall we? If you like this channel, subscribe, like if you're listening to this channel in its podcast form. Also available, by the way, if you're like, oh, I'd rather listen to this. Well, uh, go grab it as a podcast and leave it a review. Why not? Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. That's a quote from Twelfth Night. A quote I know very well because I have played the character of Malvolio in Twelfth Night. You're full of surprises, aren't you? And in fact, I got a scholarship to my school, uh, and that was the Malvolio's um, uh, monologue from Twelfth Night was one of the pieces that I performed in attempting to get that scholarship, which I got! So I know it quite well. While we may never know whether or not Shakespeare feared greatness, few can argue that he achieved greatness. After all, we're still reading his plays a good 400 years after they were written. <laughs> greatness. People are definitely going to be watching this 400 years from now. They're going to be like, wow, so much knowledge, so much brilliant commentary, so many genius takes. Legend fact boy. No, not really. To this day, the works of William Shakespeare is considered one of the greatest bodies of works in English literature, and the Bard of Stratford has gone down in history as probably the most influential playwright in the English language. His characters are complex, his plots have universal and timeless appeal. And then there's the variety, from histories to comedies to drama. Shakespeare wrote it all. Or did he? The Upstart Crow. When I started my research for this topic, I found a surprising question floating around the internet. Was William Shakespeare a real person? Well, yes, he was. We could prove it. Yeah, shut up, internet. What do you know? William Shakespeare was baptized in the Holy Trinity, the parish church of Stratford-on-Avon, on the 26th of April, 1564. That means that he had probably been born around the 23rd of April, which is generally accepted as his birthday. Keep in mind, this is over 400 years ago, and bureaucracy wasn't quite the discipline that it is now, so it's not uncommon common for birth records of 1564 to be lacking. Yeah, whenever I'm making a video about someone, it's like, he was born in the past. We don't know when. He was born like within these few years. It's not even often that even the year is not really known. John Shakespeare, Will's father, was the son of a farmer and land tenant who moved away from the family farm to become a glover and dabble in money lending. John appears to have had a rather eventful life. Those in favor of the Bard like to focus on John's political career. By 1565, he was an alderman in Stratford, and in 1568, he was elected as bailiff for the year. I guess bailiff must have meant something in the past, like different to what it does today. Because ba isn't a bailiff the person who comes and steals your when, I mean, steals your legally requisitions your when you don't pay your bills? But then there's also bailiffs in court, right? Who keep order. I don't know what like a 16th century bailiff was, but it was different. This is the highest political office in town. Well, there you go. That's it's the highest political office. And now it's just someone who comes and takes your 
away. He owned multiple properties and even applied for a coat of arms, which was granted many years later. Those against the Bard prefer to focus on the fact that John was a moneylender and an illegal wool trader. The truth is that John Shakespeare was both criminal and politician, which, allegedly, is not unusual. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not unusual back in the day, not, un- not unusual today. <laughs> right now, as of recording this, this Boris Johnson's, the UK Prime Minister's uh, summer party which he had during lockdown or whatever he had like a birthday party when everyone was supposed to be in lockdown and then the most brilliant thing came thing came out they had a photographer there and the photographer was paid by the you know because he's a government photographer by the taxpayer to take photos of boris johnson's like party during lockdown and it's like this is just so insane (laughs) oh my god Mary, Will's mother, was the daughter of Robert Arden, a powerful and wealthy landowner, and by all accounts, her father's favorite. It's generally accepted that both Mary and John were illiterate. However, Mary was named as one of two executors of her father's will, which suggests that Mary, at least, must have had some level of literacy. Women of the middle and lower caste classes weren't educated, but this was not always the case for wealthier families, and the Arden family had that money. From the 1570s, the family's fortunes took a downturn, but the Shakespeare's were not poverty-stricken, uneducated country bumpkins. They were probably comfortably middle-class for the most part. Will married his wife, Anne Hathaway. Really? In November 1582, two documents survive in the Diocesan archives that prove the marriage was performed. At the time, Anne was 26, while William was only 18. That's got to be unusual back in the day. Their daughter Susanna was born six months after the wedding, since shotguns weren't commonly used at that time. I guess we can describe it as a crossbow wedding. In February 1585, Anne gave birth to twins, Hamnet, who would sadly die at the age of 11, and Judith. Yeah, it's like, die, it's like back in the day, you're just like, yeah, the kid died at the age of 11. You just kind of brush over it. Today, that would be a tragedy. But I mean, it's obviously a tragedy back in the day, but it was also much more of a part of life, which is like intense. At this point, Shakespeare vanishes off the records for about eight years and pops up again in London, apparently without his family working as an actor. Robert Greene first mentions the upstart Crow in 1592, an actor who considered himself to be a writer as good as other scholars of the time, despite his lowly origins. He accuses the actor of considering himself to be, in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. Apparently in 1592, even critics and insults sounded posh. <laughs> I don't even understand that. It's like someone is so posh you don't understand what they're saying. That's a high level of poshness. I suppose going down in history as the man who insulted Shakespeare is one way to be remembered. So well done, Bobby. And that's the thing. Like about, you know, when you're just telling a story from far in the past and it's just like one person makes an appearance with one line or one action. There was one where it's like uh, a woman got a, got in trouble for like throwing her feces down a pipe out of her window. And it's like that. Just these little throwaway things. That person had a whole life. They probably had a family. They lived. They did all of this stuff. Their life, that was the most, that was their thing. And this is all we will ever remember them for. Which is, I don't know. It's like sad and freeing at the same time. Nothing matters. 
Shakespeare's name crops up all over London. He's listed as a player in the Lord Chamberlain's Men. In 1603, when the Lord Chamberlain's Men becomes the King's Men, his name was listed second after the King's favorite actor, so apparently the upstart Crow had come a long way by then. He's mentioned on a legal document as one of the shareholders of the Globe Theatre and on the title deed for the Gatehouse at the Blackfriars Theatre. It appears that he never actually lived there, though he simply rented it back to its previous owner. The Globe Theatre in London is uh, it's an interesting place. It, was, it burned down and they rebuilt it in my lifetime. I feel like in the 90s at some point they rebuilt this globe theater like true to shakespeare's original vision and i've been there a bunch of times we used to go there with school like i think either like maybe it was definitely through theater class and i hated it because i like shakespeare but the globe is so uncomfortable like it's true to its original form so you're sitting on like benches there's no backrest and there's nothing worse like i even hate restaurants where there's not a a a backrest you know a chair with something to lean back on i'm like why am i it's like a fundamental thing about human comfort i'm watching like a three-hour shakespeare play and just being hunched over for like hours is insane and also those motherfuckers even back in the nine in like the 1990s early 2000s when i was at school and went to the globe if you wanted to sit on a cushion they'd charge you five pounds for it and i was like where would i get five pounds if i have five pounds i'm spending it on tuck uh, or uh, like snacks and from the tuck shop i'm not spending it on like renting a cushion even if my parents were like here's five pounds to rent a cushion so you're comfortable i'll be like <laughs> yeah i guess my parents more did it to stop me complaining about it because if i told them that i didn't rent the cushion and just spent it on on food they'd be like what the but uh look you know you know sorry that rant rant's over go see the globe it's wonderful just make sure you have the five pounds probably like 15 pounds now to rent that bloody cushion you got sh- like shaken down by shakes pier uh so he's mentioned on this globe title deed it appears that he never actually lived there he simply rented it back to its previous owner okay in his career as a playwright from around 1590 to 1613 it's generally accepted that shakespeare wrote 37 plays if you add the two this is such a short time he's like the beatles of playwriting what the Beatles achieved in those, like, I, I love the, I'm not, like, I say I love the, I like the Beatles. I'm not one of these people who are like, the Beatles are the greatest band ever made or ever that got together or whatever. I think the Beatles are fantastic. They made great music. Um, but the amount of time they did it in is mad. And 37 plays in like 25 years, like Shakespeare plays. I mean, it's not the le- Beatles level of productivity, but it's pretty hot. If you add the two noble kinsmen and two lost plays, Cardinio and Love's Labour One, we're looking at 40. I didn't know there were lost Shakespeare plays. Can you imagine finding one of those? A new Shakespeare play? That'd be sick. He also wrote 154 sonnets and five long narrative poems, though some sources say two. Considering that he was also an actor and had time to dabble in the property market, Shakespeare was a very busy man. In around 1613, he retired from his life of an actor and playwright and permanently moved back to Stratford, where he passed away in 1616 at the age of 52. The truth is that Shakespeare didn't leave much of a paper trail to follow. There's a lot about him we simply don't know. What he did what did he do for the eight years before he started ruffling feathers in the theatre scene? Was he at home when his son died, and how did that affect him? These questions we'll probably never be able to answer, and since human being, beings hate a vacuum, all kinds of stories and theories began to surface. The question of authorship. 
The question of authorship of the Shakespeare plays has been around since the 1800s. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Sigmund Freud, and even Charlie Chaplin have all expressed doubts that Shakespeare from Stratford was really the man behind the quilt. In 1909, Mark Twain even published a book on the authorship question, Is Shakespeare Dead? But where did this question come from? As the story goes, the man behind the controversy is one James Wilmot, a literary scholar who decided to write an in-depth biography of William Shakespeare in 1785, almost 170 years after the playwright's death. From what I could gather, what is known about James Wilmot mostly comes from a biography written by his niece in 1813. The man appears not to have left much of a paper trail of himself or his work, which is a little ironic. As was the accepted practice of the day, James Wilmot set off to Stratford to research and write a biography on this beloved poet and playwright. He visited Shakespeare's home, other homes the bard were visited, and looked for correspondence in local libraries. To his surprise, there was no paper trail to indicate William Shakespeare had ever read a single book or wrote a letter. It appeared that the greatest poet of all time had managed to go through his entire life without leaving any literary trail to follow. Privately, Wilmot came to the conclusion that Shakespeare from Stratford and the Shakespeare who wrote the wonderful plays couldn't possibly be the same man. Surely a man who wrote so extensively would have had diaries, letters, or notes in books to sort out his deep and complex thoughts. Instead, he decided all these wonderful works were written by none other than Francis Bacon. I don't know. Why is it so unreasonable to feel that, like, I make a lot of videos? Do I make videos in my private life? No! Like, the last thing I want to do when I get home from work is make videos. I spend all day making videos. Like, I don't even like... Like, I find it... I watch way less documentaries and educational television than I used to because I'm like, ah, oh, it's a bit close to work, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously not quite what I do. Like, I watch no fact videos on YouTube. I watch... I listen to no podcasts about history or science, even though before I started doing this, that was like 90% of my consumption. And now I'm just like, oh, it's a bit too much like work. And I'll be listening to it and I'll be like, oh, that's a good idea. I should try something like that. Or I'm like, oh, that's a brilliant, this is so good. And then it just inspires me. And I'm like, I don't want to be inspired. I just want to chill out and learn something. But it's impossible now. <laughs> it's ruined it. I mean, I love that I get to do it. So it's completely worthwhile. And also there's plenty of good fiction television to watch. So uh, at least there's that. But I mean... It's kind of interesting, isn't it? But I don't blame Shakespeare for not, like, writing sh It's like, yo, you should just be writing plays. It's Shakespeare. No one wants to read his diary. Just go write another Twelfth Night. It'd be like me if I made a diary. Being like, hello, yeah, today I'm up to this. No one would care. No one would care. They'd just be like, tell us some more facts, fact boy. Tell us some tangents that don't go on for too long, like this one. <laughs> Instead, he designed that all these wonderful works were written by none other than Francis Bacon. Oddly, he never published his opinion. It was first mentioned in a series of lectures by his friend, James Corton Cowell, in 1805. However, according to some sources, these lectures were only rediscovered in 1931. That is a long time later. A Shakespearean scholar, James Shapiro, because apparently everyone involved in this is called James, is of the opinion that the lectures were a forgery created in the 20th century to support the Baconian theory after the Oxfordian theory started becoming more popular if i remember anything from the oxfordian theory from that previous video sorry about the oxfordian theory from that previous video that i made is that that's this is the oxford oxfordians the group of people who believe it was like a collection of other writers who wrote his plays which we'll soon find out whether wilmot ever came to this conclusion and never published it or whether it was a fabrication the bard was out of the bag ah ah the question was out in the universe did shakespeare write shakespeare if not Shakespeare, then who?
This question has kept many Shakespeare fans up at night. Societies were founded, dedicated to finding the truth. Was it a single author? There are around 80 candidates, or an entire cabal of writers working together to create the biggest deception in literary history? There are a couple of theories to consider, so let's start with the anti-Stratfordian theory. The anti-Stratfordians firmly believe that Shakespeare of Stratford and the Bard are two different people. Most other theories are rooted in the same objections, so it's a good place to dive into this tangled web of deceit. Probably the biggest objection to Shakespeare being Shakespeare boils down to his lack of education. According to the anti-Stratfordians, Shakespeare had, at most, a primary school level of education. They're not wrong, there are no records showing Shakespeare ever attended school or university. While some accept that he probably attended the King's New School, a grammar school in Stratford, they claim that still means his education was limited at best. It's simply not possible that a man of limited education could have such extensive knowledge of history, the classics, languages like Greek and Latin, and such an extensive vocabulary. Yeah, because people who teach themselves, that's got a word. Is it autodidact, or am I imagining that? That could mean something totally different. That's the, that's the word that springs to mind. So my vocabulary is so bad for someone who reads so much stuff, I regularly come across words I don't know that I feel like I should know. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but people totally teach themselves, and you don't have to go to... Uh, there's got to be amazing examples of authors from the present day and throughout history who didn't get a formal education. Of course there are. Of course, there are some who believe that this means Shakespeare of Stratford definitely existed but never attended school at all and was basically illiterate. So they argue, how could a man that could barely read and write produce such a vast body of work? Another pillar of anti-Stratfordian objection lies in Shakespeare's limited experience and travel. Shakespeare married at the age of 18, so it's unlikely that he would have had time to finish a proper apprenticeship. Being a commoner with limited education, he wouldn't have had any experience or insight into complex legal codes, courtly traditions, and those who rule. There are no, also no records of the Bard ever leaving England. In fact, it seems that the only traveling he did was between Stratford and London until his retirement in 1613. Not being a local lass myself, I'm not sure how far, far apart London and Stratford are, but if you're of the school that believes that one can only write what one knows, it's unlikely that Will would have bumped into many members of the Italian court, ghosts from Denmark, Jewish moneylenders from Venice, or Julius Caesar in his travels. I guess, like nowadays, it's a lot easier to write what you don't know because well google google maps all of this stuff you can just go and it's like okay uh you know google street view must be amazing for writers because you'd be like okay there's a corner there's, you, there's a coffee shop on that corner you walk down the street it's like it's busy it's gonna be super incredibly useful um but obviously they didn't have that stuff in the past but they was they had books <laughs> like shakespeare could go to a library um i mean look, let's just go ahead and just assume that shakespeare knows how to read <laughs> I know, bold assumption, whistleboy. Um, he could obviously just go to the library and read about Jewish moneylenders or um, Julius Caesar or ghosts. Of course he could. And then he'd be all knowledgeable about it and then he could come back and write a book on it. It's much easier than actually going there. Then there's the lack of literary evidence. Other than the title deeds and legal documents that contain only his signature, there are no original manuscripts, no letters, no diaries. In fact, there's no physical proof that Shakespeare ever wrote a word in his lifetime. The only proof, according to anti-Stratfordians, that we have of Shakespeare writing his plays is the fact that his name is on the printed versions. However, without the original manuscript as proof, nobody's anybody's name could be slapped on the play, so a writer wanting to stay anonymous could simply have used the name William Shakespeare, perhaps even paid the real William Shakespeare to keep quiet, and no one would have been any the wiser. That's got to be a good job, right? 
It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah, I just want to use your name on this absolute masterpiece of a play. Okay, and I'm going to pay you to do it. You're going to pay me as well? I mean, okay, okay. To add more fuel to this fire is the fact that his name is not always spelled the same way. There are different versions. Shakespeare, two words. Shakespeare without the second A. If a man could barely spell his name, how did he write 37 plays? Well, people were less, like, attached to spelling back in the day. You just write however you felt like. It wasn't so enforced. Despite being such a celebrated playwright in his time, it appears that no one in Stratford had much to say about the celebrity in their midst. No letters or diaries have been found of friends or family singing the praises of their local hero. There are also no records of a grand funeral in 1616. Surely the death of such a great man should have led to a funeral procession that stopped traffic for days. Finally, anti-Stratfordians argue that the style and lexicon is too varied for all the works to have been written by the same author, not to mention the sheer volume of work. It's simply not possible that a single man wrote all those plays by himself. There are more reasons why Shakespeare of Stratford is not Shakespeare the playwright, but we'd have to make an entire video to cover all of them, so let's just move on. The Suspects Shakespeare clearly didn't write his own plays because he was an uncouth, uneducated country bumpkin who could barely sign his own name. Alright, I disagree, but okay. So who was the true master of work? Suggestions range from Francis Bacon and Walter Raleigh to Queen Elizabeth herself, the first one. But let's focus on two more likely culprits, Francis Bacon, the Baconian theory, and Edward de Vere, the Oxfordian theory. I thought Oxfordian was Oxfordian was that it was a bunch of people writing the plays as like a collective. Or did I just imagine that? Well, I guess we'll find out. So Francis Bacon was born on the 22nd of January 1561, three years before the Bard from Stratford, and he died on April the 9th, 1626, a full ten years after Shakespeare. This means that, as far as historical timelines are concerned, they were alive at the same time, which to me already makes him slightly more a slightly more likely candidate than some of the others. Baconian theorists firmly believe that Francis Bacon, Viscount St. Alban, had the connections that would have given him access to a superior education and intimate knowledge of the Elizabethan court in their right. Bacon does have all the necessary qualifications. He studied at Trinity College, Cambridge. His father, Sir Nicholas Bacon, served as Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. His cousin, through his mother's side, was Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, and Chief Minister of the Crown by the end of Elizabeth's reign. This guy sounds mega posh, doesn't he? As for Bacon, he was admitted to Gray's Inn, an institute for legal education. Still exists, by the way. Uh, it's one of the... Uh, the the barrister oh my god i can't even remember what they're called inns one of the barristers inns is that what they're, they're inns inns of law or something how do i not remember this there's four of them or i used to be an institute for legal education in 1576 and eventually rose the position of solicitor general and finally attorney general so he would have had an in-depth knowledge of the legal system. Bacon was also a successful politician, representing first Malcolm Regis in Dorset and later Taunton, Liverpool, the county of Middlesex, Southampton, Ipswich, and the University of Cambridge as a member of Parliament. This guy's busy. How's he going to write all these plays? He already had access to the royal court, and if you add his political career, he had first-hand experience in the system in the power in the system in power at the time this is also one of the reasons why baconians fearly would have written under an alias writing under an assumed name would have given him the opportunity to comment on the politics of his day without risking his reputation 
and reprisals from the queen. Of course, most people today are more familiar with the important role Francis Bacon played in science. Yes, he is commonly considered the father of the scientific method. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even going to try and explain this. Suffice to say, the idea of forming the scientific method is super basic. It's just like, how about we prove kind of. <laughs> Suffice to say, the idea of formulating a theory and collecting data was first born from, Sir Francis, from Francis Bacon's empirical method. So why is this relevant? Shakespeare is a playwright and not a scientist. Scientific method is... Unless I'm getting it wildly wrong, it's like, yo, you come with a theory and then you try and, dis, you try and prove the theory. Like, it's not before where it was just, you know, guesswork. It completely revolutionized science. I'm explaining it badly. Look, just go like like go, YouTube search what is scientific the- uh, theory if you want a scientific method if you want to know more about that and some big brain will ex- be explaining it better than I am. If I've made a video about it in the past, maybe it's even me. <laughs> Weird. Baconians argue that this proves Francis Bacon's intelligence, his inquisitive nature, and his ability to think creatively about a problem. As is often the case, philosophy and science were close companions, so Bacon was considered a great philosopher with a collection of essays to prove it. Through his essays, Bacon shows a deep understanding of Latin and ancient Roman history and philosophy. According to scholars, his writing shows a love for metaphors, analogies, and vivid imagery. He uses wit as a way to reach his audience and prefers to use quick, brief statements rather than pages of rambling. After all, we know that brevity is the soul of wit. Sound familiar? Does sound familiar, doesn't it? I still don't believe it, but it is an interesting theory. Also, this guy sounds like a good science writer. You know when you're reading one of those science books and you're just like, this is so easy to read and you're just learning so much and you just keep turning the pages? Bacon sounds like this dude back in the day. Baconians also argue that a lot of Bacon's philosophies and theories are reflected in Shakespeare's writing, which indicates that even if he didn't write all the plays, he certainly had a hand in writing or editing some of them. Of course, other than commenting on the politics of the day, another reason Bacon would have used a pseudonym according to Baconians is the fact that being a playwright was a lowly occupation and no proper nobleman would want to be associated with anything so crass. However, Bacon did write poetry and plays, which, to me anyway, blows the entire theory of being a lowly playwright right out of the water. If Bacon didn't want to be associated with such an unworthy profession, why would he have written anything under his own name? Scholars also feel that his poetry is stilted and his character development lacked the depth and insight of Shakespeare. Who knows, perhaps he wrote bad plays under his own name to make sure nobody would expect him of being Shakespeare. <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It's like, yeah, no, no, I write that plays that no one likes and no one cares about because um just want to people throw people off the scent from my genius of course considering the bacon was a trained lawyer politician scientist and philosopher who found time to write essays on philosophy and develop the scientific method i'm not sure when it had the time to write 37 plays 154 sonnets and five narrative poems i mean there are people who are just super genius though like if someone was like the beatles wrote all of their songs within that time period you'd be like Nah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And then there are the ciphers. Now, we could probably do an entire video on the mystery of the ciphers. In 1605, Bacon de- devised a method of steganography, essentially hiding one message in another message or image. Bacon, mate. Yeah, this guy sounds like an absolute legend. According to many Baconians, starting with Delia Bacon, no relation, in 1857, Francis Bacon hid messages through all his plays, indicating that the works were, in fact, written by him or a collection of other Renaissance writers, depending on who you believe, and not 
William Shakespeare. Yeah, I'm familiar with some of these from the other video, and they're all they're all like massive stretches. It's like, yeah, if you combine the word on like line 17 of page 74 with like line 17 on page 86, it says not Shakespeare. And you're like, whoa! Except it doesn't. Is it no? <laughs> At this point, though, I feel I need to rein in the unicorns a little. If you consider the sheer number of words found in 37 plays, 154 sonnets, and five narrative poems, I'm fairly sure you could find a cipher claiming Elvis Presley was the true author. Exactly. Just make sure you don't use the second letter of every third word on every fifth page, but only the plays he wrote before 1612, and only those printed by the Globe Theatre between 1605 and 1612, and let us see what you find. It might even be the true identity of Shakespeare. Yeah, this is the thing. It's like... Yo, at some point it's like you're just looking way too far into it. Edward de Vere. According to the Oxfordian theory, another contender, and one that has gained considerable popularity, is Edward de Vere, a 17th, the 17th Earl of Oxford. This theory was first proposed by the very aptly or unfortunately named J. Thomas Looney in 1920. De Vere was born on April the 12th, 1550, so he'd have been 14 years old when Shakespeare was born. He died on June the 24th, 1604, which presents a little bit of a problem. If we assume De Vere was, in fact, Shakespeare, around 14 plays, including some of his best works, such as King Lear, Macbeth, and The Tempest, were published between 1605 and 1613 after his death i mean okay so he could have written them and then they were published later but again we're already stretching something that is super tenuous even stretchier writing and publishing works from beyond the grave would have been an incredible feat yeah writing them would have publishing them wouldn't have been like tons of shit's published after people die like authors working on books die all the time and then they're published posthumously wasn't that, 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 that there's that half that book written by um famous british author wrote the hitchhiker's guide for the galaxy douglas adams douglas adams he wrote that book and it was half finished and they just published it half finished i think i've not read it um which is like that's that's you're just reading the book knowing that it's just going to end at some point you'd be like but what about the ending However, much like Bacon, Edward de Vere has the right qualifications. He attended the Queen's College and St. John's College in Cambridge, so he has an education befitting of a gentleman. He inherited the title of Earl in his teen years and spent eight years living as a royal ward of William Cecil, who happened to be the father of Robert Cecil, if you remember our Baconian theory. So apparently the Cecils got around. He also lived with his uncle, Arthur Golding, who translated Ovid's Metamorphosis from Latin into English. This is significant because Ovid is considered by scholars one of the major influences in Shakespeare's work, and De Vere had a front row set seat to its translation. Yet, yeah, also, it's entirely possible that other people might have read Ovid. Maybe other people even spoke Latin. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I just... <laughs> stupid conspiracy theories so here we have a gentleman who has the right breeding and the right background who was a well-known patron of the arts as well as a writer there's some evidence that he wrote plays though no examples exist anymore and he stopped publishing around the same time as shakespeare rose to prominence once again the assumption is made that de vere wrote under a pseudonym to protect his noble reputation from the lowly theater which everyone knows was filled with gambling, drunkenness, and general debauchery, not something a man of breeding would ever engage in. It's funny how theatre is now, like, very civilized, isn't it? It's like now it's, you know, quiet, people clap. There's a... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a big fan of theatre, like, despite loving being in it and 
like I mentioned at the beginning, like I love being in Shakespeare plays and I did that scholarship thing for it. Um, I much prefer being in a play than actually watching a play. If I'm in, if I'm watching a play, I'm like, why am I in the cinema? Like, in my opinion, I think I've mentioned this before, maybe even on this channel, that my opinion is cinema is the evolution of theater. So why would we, it would be like watching black and white. I know people still like watching black and white movies and it's an artsy thing. But I feel the same way about theater as I do about watching black and white movies. It's kind of artsy. Um, why wouldn't I just watch a movie? It's like the evolution of theater. It's better. Like, I don't really enjoy going to the theater, but I love going to the movies. How did we get onto that topic? I'm so sorry. Let's, uh, let's find my place and carry on with what you're here for. So far, it seems like a very similar theory to Bacon. However, Oxfordians firmly believe that events from De Vere's life are reflected in the plays of Shakespeare, which meant that De Vere, unlike Shakespeare, was writing what he knew, an idea that was only popularized by Mark Twain, by the way. Let's look at some examples. While Shakespeare never left England, De Vere traveled the continent for about a year and spent a lot of time in Italy, so he would have had a deep insight into Italian history, the language, the court, the politics, the literature, and the art. In a year? I mean, it's not that long. It's like, I don't feel I have a particularly good knowledge of British history, language, court, politics, literature, and art. And I'm British. <laughs> but I'm not that interested. <laughs> I am, I am. I just don't feel like these guys back in the day, they were so smart. They loved looking into stuff. Ain't nobody got time for that. And I'm like, yeah, arts, okay, I guess it's there. Hamlet in particular is considered to be a very autobiographical work. The character of Polonius has long been considered to be a parody of Sir William Cecil, whom De Vere lived with. Hamlet wishes to marry Polonius's daughter Ophelia in the same manner as De Vere married Cecil's daughter Anne. Then there is the delightful tale of Hamlet being captured by pirates and left on a beach. The same thing happened to De Vere. Seriously? De Vere had a super interesting life then. Then we have the Ducats affair. In The Merchant of Venice, Antonio borrows 3,000 ducats from Shylock, a moneylender. Oxford himself borrowed around 3,000 pounds from a moneylender named Michael Locke to finance a voyage before looking for the Northwest Passage to India. That is a coincidence. I mean, it's, it's a coincidence, that's what I'm saying, but it's a hell of a coincidence, isn't it? Did they know each other, this De Vere guy and Shakespeare? I don't think so, right? We don't know if they did. So not only does De Vere have the right breeding and education, certain episodes of his life are reflected in the plays of Shakespeare. This must be conclusive proof that the Earl of Oxford was, in fact, the well-known playwright. Uh, conclusive proof? That's not what conclusive proof is. Other to my skeptical brain. Other suspects. The Baconian and Oxfordian theories are the two most supported, but there are other possibilities. In the 1930s, Gilbert Slater pointed out that if you look at the strong female characters in Shakespeare's plays, something that went against the norms of society, perhaps the writer was, in fact, a noble woman, not a noble man. Two candidates, Mary Sidney, sister of poet Philip Sidney, and Amelia Bassano, daughter of a Venetian merchant, are both considered likely candidates. Just because a guy, I know it's like wasn't a thing back in the day, but just because a guy believes in like strong women and stuff and strong female characters definitely doesn't mean it can't be a man writing it. <laughs> Even if men did feel that way back in the day, not all of them did. Mary Sidney received an advanced education and spent a lot of time at the court of Queen Elizabeth. She was also a well-known writer of religious works and was a patron of the arts, and she actually provided funds, one of the theatres that first published Shakespeare's plays. Emilio Bassano was the first woman to publish a volume of poetry, and she visited Denmark as a child. She was also a known mistress of one of the main patrons to Shakespeare's acting company, so even if she wasn't the great Shakespeare, 
she probably met him well big difference between being him and meeting him isn't there of course don't forget christopher marlowe there were some rumors that after his suspicious death which he faked of course he continued writing under a new name but that's a mystery for another day so who wrote william shakespeare the most likely candidate is william shakespeare Woo! <laughs> to understand why this literary master left no manuscripts no writings and no paper trail behind we need to understand the world in which shakespeare lived in his time shakespeare was certainly well regarded however his status as a literary genius and master wordsmith only came much later in his time he was simply a playwright plays were not considered literature in fact libraries refused to carry published plays because it was considered pulp fiction there was no concept of copyright once the play was finished and sold to the company of players the writer lost all rights to the play he was paid a single sum and the play was sent for printing or copying out to the various players to prepare for performance so once sold the original manuscript didn't have any value that's an interesting way of doing things i guess that could happen today you could totally like ghostwriting totally happens at the time paper was expensive so it was often reused to stiffen book covers or line baking trays odds are someone in london ate a well-read rye loaf for breakfast one morning that's actually amazing it's like this happens all the time for like other stuff as well stuff that we'd see as incredibly valuable today it was just like yeah no one valued it in the past <laughs> like bitcoin and just like michelangelo didn't paint the sistine chapel the first time he picked up a brush it's unlikely that shakespeare's first attempts were noteworthy in any way so there's no reason why he would have kept his earlier writings either diaries and essays were the pursuits of noblemen and royalty who didn't actually have to grind for a living commoners and shakespeare and his neighbors in stratford were all commoners didn't have the time to sit in well-furnished drawing rooms writing down their innermost thoughts they were far too busy trying to make a living then we have the question of pseudonyms the idea of a nobleman writing under pseudonyms supposes that a pseudonym would have been necessary the reason many of shakespeare's earlier plays were uncredited is simply because at the time it was not standard practice to put the name of the writer on the play in fact christopher marlowe a famous playwright never had his name printed on any of his plays before his death in an industry where anonymity was the norm creating a pseudonym would have actually increased your chances of being found out the fact that shakespeare's name appears on some of his later works is actually very significant it means that at some point shakespeare's plays became so popular that it was sold to the public using his name much like movies are sold today by using famous actors so shakespeare was well known at the time it was common for playwrights to collaborate or for one writer to take over from another this was theater not literature and the show must go on if shakespeare the actor was pretending to be a writer but couldn't do anything other than sign his name to some legal documents one of his many collaborators fellow actors or adver adversaries would have noticed another interesting aspect of shakespeare's plays is that they're written with the stage in mind acting companies were small the lord chamberlain's men consisted of eight players the tempest had at least 18 characters so characters had to play multiple characters at the same time shakespeare considered this some characters will never be on stage at the same time and there'd be enough time for costume changes between different scenes where a single actor might play two or three characters this may sound obvious now but it implies that the writer of the shake of shakespeare's plays had something neither bacon nor devere had an intimate and practical knowledge of the theater and basic stage management not something that was part of a net cambridge education yes but to be fair when i made that argument earlier about shakespeare being able to go to the library and look up what life is like in venice or wherever sure um that can happen 
and as cad francis bacon go to the library and read a book about stage management or ask one of his like summon someone to his drawing room and be like yo plebeian tell me how things work in this little theater of yours boy um okay so not necessarily a discounting thing although look, i'm still obviously on the side that william shakespeare wrote william shakespeare Speaking of education, a grammar school education, which is what Shakespeare would have received, consisted of writing verse, studying classical drama, Latin, and rhetoric, and the system was based on memorization, so Shakespeare would likely have remembered vast sections of the classics. It's true that he didn't attend a university, but neither did Christopher Marlowe, Mark Twain, or Stan Lee for that matter. As for experience, he was an actor performing for the royal court, and as such, would have been exposed to the inner workings of courtly life. Shakespeare didn't write all of his plays alone, though many modern-day attribution research, which essentially looks at literary ties and habits that occur subconsciously through modern-day attribution research, which essentially looks at literary dicks and habits that occur subconsciously, we know that at least 17 of Shakespeare's plays were written with other playwrights, including Thomas Nash, John Fletcher, and George Peel. There have been some suggestions that Shakespeare even collaborated with Christopher Marlowe. At the heart of it, the argument against Shakespeare is based in classism. No one wants to believe that the greatest writer of English literature was a commoner. Oh, well, no, only rich people want to not believe that. Anyone else is like, cool. Upward mobility. A man with no titles, no posh education, and no conceivable importance managed to achieve a level of greatness reserved for only the most important members of society. What, what? Shakespeare is one of the greats. He was a common man with humble origins that turns the world of literature on its head. His lack of education and class allowed him to understand and write for the common man as much as the court, an insight that neither De Vere nor Bacon would have had. He relied on his wonderful imagination to write stories that are still considered some of the best works more than 400 years after his death. The boy from Stratford proved that you don't need to be born into privilege to achieve greatness great ending this has been an episode of decoding the unknown thank you so much for watching or listening however you get this show if you're watching on youtube please uh give it a like make sure you subscribe leave a comment maybe you got a suggestion for a future episode or something like that go on then and uh, if you're listening to this show leave us a review that would be grand and as always i'll see you next time Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.